from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a Bram Stoker award-winning author who seamlessly transitions from futuristic dystopia to suburban folk horror. His work is terrifying and dark, and sometimes falls into the realm of transgressive. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, The Vile Thing We Created. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Robert P. Otone. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 28th day of August 2023. I came across your book, The Vile Thing We Created, by recommendation of Stephanie Parent, and I could tell by the bizarre cover with the accompanying name that I was going to be reading something very uniquely disturbing. Your writing style is cutting and ruthless in its ability to examine the harsh realities of life, but also brimming with the qualities of a master storyteller. So it's great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward to getting into the story with you. Thank you. That's very kind. I appreciate it. And I'm glad Stephanie recommended me and told you about my stuff. She's the best. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the book is about a young couple, a man named Ian, who's a high school English teacher, and a woman named Lola, who has her own gourmet baking business. And as they get older, they notice that as all their friends begin having children, they're no longer included in their activities and have become, in a way, estranged a little bit. So Ian and Lola succumb to an implied form of peer pressure to have children. And what follows as Lola navigates the travails of pregnancy and resulting postpartum depression is horrific. And I have to commend you for placing the admonition that expectant mothers may want to sit this one out in the acknowledgments <laughs> at the front of the book. Like, I was like, is it really that bad? And then about halfway into it, oh, thank God he did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want any women getting too upset or anything while, you know, with child. Yeah. There's been a couple reviewers who reached out to me. One of them, she soldiered on 
and finished her review, but then put in her review that she would have to revisit the book later on when she was no longer pregnant because she felt she could score it differently. She gave it a perfectly fine score, but I had another one reach out recently and she kind of said like, hey, I just got your book. Like, do you really think I should wait? She's like, I haven't told anybody, but I'm eight weeks pregnant or whatever. And I was like, well, um, that's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but maybe. Buyer beware. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, really. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. I feel like if I was to read the book, if I was a woman who was with child at the time, I would probably get a little freaked out reading some of the things, more of the realistic side of things than the supernatural side of things, especially knowing what women of color in this country go through and trying to have a kid or any kind of medical situation. You know, it's remarkably difficult. So, like, I wanted to have Lola kind of confront those things head on. And I'm just thankful that the women who've read it have been like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is very (laughs) difficult. And you do have to advocate for yourself because nobody really listens to women in this country when they're having any kind of medical thing. So that was nice to hear, at least. Yeah. Well, so pregnancy and childbirth is revered in our culture as a spiritual, beautiful experience, which I'm sure it is. But What I wanted to know was what inspired you to examine the dark side of pregnancy by not only exploring the psychology of postpartum depression, but also using it as a launching pad for a transgressive supernatural horror story. Wow. Yeah, that's an awesome question. You know, I live in New York and everything is so astronomically expensive here. You can't buy two bedroom one bathroom house for anything less than 600 grand where I live. It's just, it's not possible. So like the idea of like, Oh, becoming parents, there's no fluffy sentimental sweetness that comes with it to me. It's just immediate stress about money, you know? So it starts with the monetary stress right away. Then it goes into the physical, emotional, uh, and all of the stress that comes with it. And even then, like, you know, at the end of the day, I still am not like, oh, let's have children and bring children into the and I wish it was I wish I thought Mm -hmm. differently, but I'm just too much of a pragmatist, I guess. And I just don't look at it as like this rainbows and sunshine thing, as unfortunately, a couple of my friends did look at it from the perspective of rainbows and sunshines. And unfortunately, a couple of their lives are kind of ruined as a result of that. Their marriages have fallen apart monetary stressors have gotten the better of them. And it's a terrible thing when that happens. And that's certainly not the rule. Hopefully, people can work things out. But I I do lean a little bit more towards into the reality of like, where your decisions will take you as opposed to your, as you mentioned, sort of our society putting motherhood and parenthood in general, more so parenthood, it doesn't seem like they put a lot of emphasis on motherhood. They put Mm. it on parenthood. And it's like, well, motherhood, (laughs) you know, like they're the ones who are doing all of the work, you know, like, that's kind of how it is. But um, we don't give a lot of the credit to women, we give it to parents, both, we don't give it to the women. And I think that's remarkably stupid. And I think it's really dangerous. And I think it's unfair. And I didn't want to kind of like, The idea is that they go into having this kid, they legitimately and logically think things through in the way that if I was to have a kid, I would do the same. It's just it doesn't go how they hoped, right? So like, I was making the mistake of looking around on Reddit. 
and they called the novel an anti-natalist novel um which like i i don't think it is you're an anti-ist everybody's an anti-ist yeah and i'm like well you know but uh yeah i just i don't know i don't see it so much as an anti-natalist novel but like i do see the fundamental problems in like our society looking at childbirth as this like ultimate thing that's the way they look at motherhood is it's the ultimate thing for a woman and i think that's absurd and I think that's dangerous. And, I, you know, if motherhood takes you to the step of closer to who you want to be or what you see for yourself, then that's great. But I don't think that that's something that one should only aspire to be. And if that's what it is, and that's what it is, that's great. But I think people have a lot more to offer than just their genetic makeup. Yeah. Yeah, I think another thing to kind of backtrack a little bit to where you were talking about pragmatism was... Magical thinking will get you in trouble in a lot of different areas, Yeah, even marriage itself. You know, I mean, I understand people that like to watch films for escapism that, mm -hmm. you know, like rom-coms or just full on dramas. But if you go into a real world relationship with those expectations and those kinds of ideas governing how, you know, you're going to physically and emotionally make something like a marriage work or even something completely non-romantic like a a business venture you know yeah. i mean just any kind of magical thinking can really i would say almost always is going to cause some possibly catastrophic issues <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned like the magical thinking idea like i don't discount like the idea of like when you lay your eyes on your child for the first time that like Perhaps that interior primordial parenthood moment happens. I don't know. I don't have kids. I don't want to have kids. My wife and I don't want to have kids unless we adopt in the future, which we might. But the reality is sometimes that doesn't happen. Like it doesn't happen in the animal kingdom all the time. Like a parent will look at their child and just no connection whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of an idea that I wanted to play with here. Like what would happen if two parents just did not emotionally or physically have that connection to their child? And what would the outcome be with that? Mm -hmm. And again, like, you know, if being a parent is like the ultimate thing, I know a lot of people who like, oh, I wasn't anything until I became a parent. And it's like, well, you were a son, you were a best friend, you were a, a wonderful person, you did a great job at your work, you were a lot of things before you were a parent. And I think defining oneself by any one thing is dangerous. And if you only define yourself by one thing, then I think you're limiting yourself. Hmm. Well, in the story, Ian is more passive and Lola is more aggressive, which is a common dynamic. But that particular fact is made very clear by the introspection of the characters. So in this particular case, I was curious to know what was the importance of those character traits in driving the story forward? I wanted Lola specifically to be very forthright and very she knows what she wants and she knows mm -hmm. how to get it. Or how to make it happen for herself, because it goes back to the idea of, you know, women of color having to advocate for themselves. And I wanted Lola to be that because she is African-American and, you know, she comes kind of from a broken home, but she had like the best dad, you know, she could have had 
in that yeah, Moses, situation. Moses was a great character. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I love him. I saw him as Tony Todd in my head as I was writing him. So like the oh, candy okay. man as her dad, but like a nice cute version, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> no like, hook involved. <laughs> no hooks, no hooks at all. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's like she comes from a good home, even though it's a broken home. And subconsciously, that's something she wants to avoid is the potential for a broken home as well. And she's going to do whatever she can to prevent that from happening, even though, of course, it's a horror novel. Things don't go well. But she needed to be the stronger of the two. Ian needed to be much more fragile emotionally and mentally than Lola. Because, again, you know, you play with the idea of like they don't gaslight each other, but other people gaslight them in a sense. Mm -hmm. And having her having such clear vision of what's going on and possibly what needs to be done. And then having other people kind of tell her no or tell her she's wrong. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to, again, play with those ideas. And again, women advocating for themselves, specifically in a medical situation, women of color in that case. And honestly, when I read that about how difficult it is for women of color to carry children and to get the kind of medical coverage and attention that they need, I was so grossed out by the inequity between women of color and Caucasian women, it was ridiculous. At the time, it was 2021. I was Mm -hmm. like, it's 2021. Like, how are we still here? How are we still here? Mm -hmm. Well, in the story, you highlight the pop culture of being a parent. And it's not something that all parents adhere to. People that I know that are parents don't do that kind of retain their I guess individuality so to speak Mm -hmm. but most people do which is why I refer to it as pop culture and that's the clothes the birthday parties even the slang that's used like referring to yourself or your child as quote a hot mess (laughs) (laughs) that's something I never heard until I heard other people I know that became parents no offense to anybody that uses the term a hot mess. Please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> so I know based on what you just told me that you yourself don't have children. So because of that, I'm curious, in what context have you observed this parental pop culture that you portray in the book? In every time that I've gone to a friend gathering with their children, (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's quite absurd. My friends specifically, like friends that I grew up with, they have all amalgamated into this concept that I kind of make fun of in the book. Mm -hmm. My wife's friends who have kids, not so much, not at all. So I don't know why it didn't happen with her friends where it happened with mine, where it sort of became this very strange like i don't want to call it a cult but it kind of feels that way you know (laughs) like these are guys who like cool you're going out in a a hockey jersey and a pair of jeans and then all of a sudden that gets changed into a pair of chubby's shorts and a polo shirt from vineyard vines and it's like what happened here like where like (laughs) like i hate vineyard vines to begin with but it's more about like is this the official you know uniform of fatherhood is a an ugly polo shirt and some stupid shorts like what are we doing now (laughs) so it just feels like that's what happens it feels like that's what everyone does and then like you know there's also the cult of like well we want to have two why why do you want to have two like is there a good reason well we just do okay cool that's (laughs) a rational thing to say 
<laughs> literally the world is on fire. <laughs> I, it was. I was in physical therapy earlier today and they have Good Morning America on, which like, honestly, I'd rather have a lobotomy than watch that show. But I'd rather like, have a lobotomy than watch 98% of television. <laughs> yeah, for real, man. Like this was just brutal. But like they're watching this nonsense and they're like searching for the best tacos in America. <laughs> and I, all I could think of was like Maui is burning uh, like is there nothing more important like a former president is in jail we're talking about tacos like there's so much more <laughs> and i read online this was years ago this is actually when i was doing research for the book it might have been somebody on reddit had this comment and i thought it was interesting they were like having a child now is like throwing a log on a burning fire mm-hmm and I was like, whoa, <laughs> I was like, that is dark. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and I know so many families during lockdown, specifically during COVID. I know one girl I went to high school with, she had three children during lockdown, three. Mm-hmm. Another friend of mine had two kids during the COVID pandemic. Another one had two kids as well. Like, it's just it's like Did you she have guys- twins. no. I'm trying to do the math on that. Did she just remain pregnant the entire time? <laughs> that, it, yeah. And, but that's her vibe. Like, I hate okay. to say it, but I'm not like friends with her. Already. She's a girl I went to school with. But my closer friends call her like a broodmare. That's all she wants to do is just have kids. She has eight. Mm-hmm. And she's like a weird person who refers to her family as her team. Our team's getting another player. <laughs> I have a lot of issues with parenting in America. And it's... <laughs> And as a teacher, <laughs> it's just especially weird and culty and gross. Mm-hmm. Well, in the story, regardless of how much they try to convince themselves that they want children, it really seems like Ian and Lola end up deciding to have a child just so they can fit in, which mm-hmm. obviously is a horrible reason to undertake any sort of life changing experience. I mean, there's times in the story where they're having a conversation and they're talking about being ready and, you know, I forget what other language they use, but then there's other times like Rashid saying, it sounds like you're trying to convince yourself, you know, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of the truth or it seems to be the truth so one of the horrific decisions i've witnessed multiple times with people that i know is that when their marriage is in trouble for whatever reason and they're talking about divorce they decide to have another kid because they think it'll bring them closer together and save the marriage and even when people that are married with kids that have solid marriages tell them no for the love of god that is a horrible idea they still do it so i was wondering if you had witnessed any kind of bad decisions like that that informed the writing of the story yeah one thousand percent you know i kind of alluded to it earlier a friend of mine they had a kid right as covid was popping off their entire relationship has collapsed. He's lost his job as a result of everything that's happened. It's really kind of the worst horrific case scenario. But my whole life, I've seen people, oh, we're pregnant, we're having a kid. And then it's like, you're not together anymore. This was a terrible idea. This is a terrible mistake. And it is. It's always a terrible mistake to have a kid to keep a marriage going or a relationship going or whatever, you know. But Mm -hmm. in the case of Lola and Ian, I always think back to the quote that Ian says, it's like, this is our next great adventure. Hmm. Like, we've had so many. We've done so much together. Maybe this is the next big thing for us. And 
him sort of attempting to, I guess, maybe convince Lola, even though, you know, she takes more convincing, I guess, than he does. But, you know, I think about it all the time. I used to want to be a dad in a big way. I used to want to have the kids and all that stuff. But like, as I've gotten older, there's so many things wrong with it. But at the same time, like, you know, when all my friends started popping out kids and having play dates and excluding us, you know, uh, child free couples from their plans and stuff, just like what happened to Lola and Ian, you damn right. There were times where I was like, man, if we had a kid, this would be a lot easier. You know, if we had a kid, we could be over there in the bouncy castle and, you know, having overdone hot dogs and drinking Miller lights as well. We could be doing all of this with our friends and stuff or my friends specifically. But then of course, like I realized, you know, again, it's a terrible reason (laughs) to have (laughs) a child. But in their case, like, you know, they've kind of done everything they want to do. Lola has a great business. Ian's got a great job. He is about to have a great job with his tenure situation, whatever, Mm. which I have, seen people go through firsthand and I've sort of I haven't experienced that but um it's again like it's the next thing for them it feels like the next right step for them mm-hmm. so they try to go into it with the best intentions and the best forethought but it just you know even parents in real life who try to go into it with the best possible reasons not just like hey let's save our marriage or relationship it doesn't always work out you know yeah well it's kind of odd that you yourself don't have children because when it comes to the actual birth of the child and the medical specifics in the book, it seems like you have some technical knowledge of the process. So did you do any research or do you have any previous experience with, I don't know, just (laughs) in some way being involved in the birthing process? Thankfully, Evie Knight, who was kind enough to blurb the book, she is a gynecologist. Oh, so okay. she, yeah, she was able to look at the medical stuff and give me a lot of pointers with that. But everything else regarding, you know, things that happened to Lola while she was pregnant, as well as during the birthing process and after, a lot of that stuff came from research. I talked to a lot of women who either, you know, had recently had a kid or had a kid a couple, you know, years back, whatever. And, you know, they were very open with their birthing stories and experience and stuff like that. Lola's actual childbirth scene, a lot of that is taken from a friend of mine's wife that did actually a lot of that stuff happened to her. Mm. You know, some of the more horrific stuff. And the thing that I found the most interesting in hearing some of these birthing stories are from the mothers of two children who always kind of said, like, the first one was a dream, slept through the night, no problem, blah, blah, blah. The second one was a nightmare mm. and like woke up all the time, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So hearing kind of like we had a great experience the first time, second time awful. <laughs> so I was just like, yeesh, that's that's no bueno. But um, yeah, no, a lot of research, a lot of research. And, you know, I'm very thankful to Evie Knight. Like I cannot thank her enough for taking the time to like really dig into the medical stuff. Well, so let's see here. Suspense gestates masterfully as the insidious changes pregnancy and parenthood bring a young couple evolve from joy to fear to utter horror. Robert O'Tone's newest tour de force will have you up all night wondering, is it a boy, a girl, or the end of the world? <laughs> so so does Evie Knight consider you to be an antinatalist? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe she does. I don't know. I'll ask her the next time I talk to her. I'll be like, yo, 
am I an antinatalist that she'll just laugh and send me an emoji or something? But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, when the child is finally born, right off the bat, he has the odd physical trait of having two different colored eyes, one brown like Lola and one blue like Ian, a condition called heterochromia. And they say that the eyes are the windows to the soul. So what was intended to be seen with the existence of this rare condition? Yeah, I, I think heterochromia is really cool when I see it in people. And I remember learning about it, that it's not like obviously a thing that's all the time. But I wanted him, Jonesy, the baby, to specifically feel otherworldly. And by giving him a physical manifestation of otherworldliness felt right and i was thinking of david bowie also david bowie had his one eye was the brown was always dilated or whatever it was so it looked like he had one brown eye and one blue eye Mm -hmm. and that was kind of a tribute for my wife who loves david bowie so much that's kind of where lola's love of david bowie comes in but i wanted him to have a physical representation of otherworldliness before more of it starts to happen as we progress So right off the bat, a physical manifestation that's outwardly present to set the tone for. And it's also really pretty. Heterochromia is beautiful. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I even think, what was the technical condition that David Bowie had called? Oh, that I don't remember. But that's gorgeous. Like his eyes were incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to school and this was the weirdest thing. I went to school with a girl who had one purple eye and one gold eye. Hmm. And like the purple was natural and I never knew that purple eyes could be a real thing. So like now as I've gotten older, I always have monsters that seem to have purple or gold eyes because those are two like strangely esoteric colors used in stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I always think back like that girl had one of both (laughs) and she was really (laughs) sweet and nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't esoteric well actually we're going to get into esoteric orders so i'm going to leave that one alone but what i was going to say is don't esoteric orders when it comes to their ceremonial garb use a lot of purple but i could be misremembering that no that's true okay well so in the beginning it seemed like lola was having a genuine extreme case of postpartum depression that was getting to the point of psychopathy But then we find out a much different story, at least as far as psychopathy is concerned. So was she having genuine postpartum depression or was she purely reacting to the dark nature of the child? I think she was reacting purely to the dark nature of the child. I think, you know, you could read it either way, like you said, or you could read it maybe as like a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, but like in my mind, she was reacting to the child, which makes it, you know, again, when she seeks the medical help and the professional help and stuff, they see it only as one way. They don't Mm -hmm. see what she's seeing, you know, but Mm -hmm. of course she's the most equipped to see it, you know, like you can't discount, you know, the mother's connection to their offspring, even if she herself wants to deny that connection and she herself is reacting negatively to that connection. That connection's there in the same way that it is between Ian and his mother, Dana, the connections there between Lola and Jonesy too. So yeah, I think in my mind, she's reacting purely based on what the child is giving off to her. So did you 
right at that way to kind of <laughs> lead the reader astray and then surprise them? Or was it to keep it to where nobody else really found out why? Like everybody assumed like, oh no, she's in the throes of postpartum depression. There's nothing to worry about with this child. Even when her accusations got a little on the wild side, they could chalk it up to, oh, she's getting a little psychotic. We might need to put her on some meds. Yeah, definitely the second one. Okay, so I didn't create a spoiler. <laughs> no, no, no. And it's, it's always like that, too, because like I said, women have to advocate for themselves with stuff like this. And women of color have a way harder time than, mm -hmm. you know, Caucasian women in advocating for themselves. And I'm sure women in general are not well respected when it comes to this kind of stuff. It's pretty horrific. That alone mm -hmm. is horrifying to me. But it's difficult because it's she's dealing with it in a certain way and Ian's dealing with it in a certain way and everybody else is seeing them dealing with what's happening in like very surface level terms and surface level ways. And it's very difficult for them to deal with. But I didn't ever want them to feel like antagonistic towards each other mm -hmm. or gaslighting one another at all. But what they deal with is very difficult. Yeah, it seemed like there was a few times where it was like, oh, my God, they're losing what they have, which kind of freaked me out because, like, mm -hmm. of all the horrific things that happened in the book, that kind of freaked me out because it's like, I want them to maintain the closeness that they had before. Yeah. I guess that's a reflection on you writing really good characters, you know, me developing that kind of an attachment to the two of them. Like, no, <laughs> this can't happen. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the scariest part to me is the possibility mm -hmm. that they could lose what they've built. And, you know, the worst possible thing that could happen to Lola and Ian is that they fall out of love with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at books like The Cabin at the End of the World. And at the end of that book, it doesn't matter what happens because their world is over anyway, but they don't stop loving each other, the two main characters in that, but their world is effectively over. Whereas in this, because of their intimacy and because of who they are and how perfect they kind of are for each other, if they were pulled apart by this, that would be the real tragedy, not anything involving the kid or mm -hmm. anything around them. The tragedy would be them losing each other. Yeah. Well, the story is a very psychological slow burn that to me was very reminiscent of Rosemary's Baby and the Witch in that there was always tension building with well-placed creepy moments accented by horrific plateaus. And one of those horrific plateaus involves the death of one of the characters and Jonesy's passivity and indifference to it. And when it comes to children, it seems like it just takes one little tweak to make them scary or disturbing. Whereas like with an adult, it seems like it has to be a little bit more complex or dramatic. Why yeah. do you think that is? I always look at children, especially younger kids like Jonesy. By the time the story kind of wraps up, he's like very young still. He's like five or whatever. And I always look at kids that young and younger than that as like they're so fresh to this world like everything is so new to them you know there's new colors that they're seeing and like how does that affect them there's new things that they're tasting smelling all of these like new ideas to them and seeing how they react is what's always exciting so like 
it's easy to make them creepy because when something horrifying happens, if they don't react to it, then immediately you think, oh, my God, that's so sinister and so scary or whatever. It's like that picture of the little girl smiling while the house is burning in the background. (laughs) You know that meme? Yeah. (laughs) It's like that. And it's like when you realize, like, she's just smiling for the camera because that's what she's always done. She's not smiling Uh specifically because the house is burning. It just Uh created like a perfect picture. Jonesy's reaction, because he's so fresh and because he's a totally new soul to this world, he's still feeling everything and he's still reacting to everything. So I wanted to take those reactions and kind of give them like an approach where he's learning. It's Mm -hmm. less about him like, oh, mommy, I like doggies and cats. It's less that it's more along the lines of like, what is this made out of? Like, Mm -hmm. what is this kind of thing? And my thinking with Jonesy's, he was very inspired by Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. So it's like by the time this story is taking place in Watchmen, Dr. Manhattan is kind of withdrawn from humanity. And Silk Spectre describes him as he looks at things as if he doesn't know what they are. And that really sticks to me. And I was like, when I was putting Jonesy together, I wanted him to be a little bit like that. And I wanted him to just be curious and strange because curiosity is strange. Like, you know, at the very you know surface level, we should just be like, yeah, everything's great, you know. Mm-hmm. But really, I like look outside and I'm like, what's going on in that tree? over there like is that thing gonna fall is it rotten are termites Mm. eating it what's the deal you know like but i should Mm. just be like that tree's beautiful man cool party but no it's like that thing's gonna fall and destroy my fence you know well there is a lot going on with jonesy as far as where he begins and where he ends So is Jonesy himself anything more than an innocent child or does he have some culpability in the things that he does? And can you expand on that to the point that it won't cause any spoilers? Mm -hmm. I don't see Jonesy as really completely responsible for what he does. He is just learning our world and Mm -hmm. he's just reacting to things in a way that perhaps an old soul or old souls or, you know, things that are new to this world might react to them. Mm -hmm. So it's not really his fault. You know, he doesn't understand what he is completely. He doesn't know what his place is. And, you know, is he a villain? Is he not? You know, personally, I don't see him as a villain. Mm -hmm. And I don't see Ian and Lola as villains either. I just see Jonesy as like a vessel that's not getting the right stuff possibly poured into him. Mm. If that makes sense, there's a lot going on in his life. He's surrounded by a lot of people because after he comes into existence, Lola needs help. And Lola gets help from Ian's mother and her brother and all these other influences on this child, which is good. It takes a village. Like that's a legitimate thing that I believe in. It does take a village. But in this case, not all members of that village are good actors. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, he himself is a child and whatever else is going on with him is kind of new to this particular realm slash time period. Mm-hmm. It's like he's got a lot more power than he's emotionally mature enough to deal with. Almost like somebody just dropped a gun in his lap, like. You know, that's way too much power for a a child to have, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, it's he doesn't know how to do anything. He knows how to do some things. It's not a spoiler to say that he does appear in different places that he should not be appearing in. Mm-hmm. And you don't know whether it's real or if it's not. He's able to bring things over that should not exist in our world. And these are just things that he's like, this is weird that I could do this, but I could do it. And he tells his parents, he tries to tell them at a couple different points, the things that he can do, but he's a child and they just think it's weird. So it kind of goes into the parent not listening to the child thing, too. I mean, and we've seen that in horror movies before, but we've never seen it where the parents are experiencing something and the child's experiencing something and it's all mixing together, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that kind of prompted that question about his culpability is there are parts in the book where Jonesy appears in different places that cause harm to other people. Mm-hmm. So that's what kind of prompted that question. Is he yeah. nefariously doing that to cause those events? Or is it just he's got a toy and he doesn't know what to do with it. He's like, oh, look, I'm over here. I'm over here. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly it. In my mind, it's just it's playing with new toys. It's, you know, it's like when you dissect something. Remember in like school when you would dissect something in uh, high school or middle school or whatever. And they would tell you like, hey, you're looking for this. You're looking for that. You're looking for this when you're opening up this like I remember we did um, a baby pig, Mm -hmm. something we did. And we opened up the baby pig and like they told us specifically, these are certain things that you should look for and then ask questions. Mm -hmm. So like we found the things we needed to find. And then I remember being like, you know, working with my partner and I was like, okay, well, what's this? And they're like, well, that's the heart. Like, oh, well, what's this? And they're like, that's the stomach or whatever. And just like that's kind of Jonesy's thing, too. He's just figuring his stuff out and he's figuring out what can he do and like how do people react to that you know like it's not his fault that he can be in different places but Mm -hmm. it's other people's reactions you know it's like when a kid falls down and you go oh and then the kid starts crying whereas Mm -hmm. if the kid falls down and you laugh or smile or whatever the kid's gonna be like oh everything's okay yeah you know jonesy's very much like that too yeah i've done that with my niece before she fell down And, you know, it didn't hurt her, but it jarred her enough to surprise her. And she looked over at us and I just started going, yay, you know, gave her a hand clap like she (laughs) had done a triple sow cow with a dismount or something like that. And everything was good. (laughs) Yeah. See, it's it's that's what you got to do. Like, it's, you know, we were at a friend's house or whatever. And a little guy, he's like three. He got wet Mm -hmm. and he was like splashing in a water thing and he got wet on his shirt. He had a little T-shirt on and he was like, huh? And it shocked him. And we were like, Mm. it's okay, man. I was like, there's extra shirts for you, my guy. And he just kept playing with the water. Like, instead of crying Mm. or freaking out, you know, Mm. that's exactly what Jonesy's doing. Like, he's just playing with a puddle of water. Only his puddle of water is a lot stranger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the best parts of the setting of Ian and Lola's house is that their backyard is backed up to the woods, which are dark and spooky with plenty of places for evil things to hide but they also have a sliding glass door and as funny as it sounds there are so many movies with terrifying scenes that involve a sliding glass door and the most intense one that i can think of is do you watch any of the uh french extremist films yeah 
Have you seen Inside with Beatrice Dahl? Yep. Oh, my God. Do you know the scene I'm talking about where she's sitting on the couch and she just happens to look up and Beatrice Dahl is on the other side of that sliding door and just starts punching into it and it's yeah. spiders like that scared the living <laughs> shit out of me so you know and that and i think like in the old school uh the old school 90s slasher scream yeah at the beginning wasn't drew barrymore looking at her boyfriend getting gutted on the other side yep. of a sliding glass door yeah so yeah. Like, what exactly is at play? Is it the exposure or the fragility of what's separating you from the outside danger, just like a pane of glass? <laughs> I definitely think it's the fragility because you think of it as like, oh, this is a door, this is to keep things out, blah, 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 blah. But why is it glass? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, I grew up in houses that had sliding glass doors. Like the house my mother lives in has a sliding glass door. It's very thick. So you got to put the gas on to get through it, but it's been done. And our house in Pennsylvania had a sliding glass door. And that one is the one I was specifically thinking of with the woods in the back, because I remember being a little kid and just staring out into it. And it was just darkness and woods. And oh, I was just God. like, I was like, what is <laughs> in there? <laughs> <But it's, laughs> and the answer was always bears <laughs> and deer. But uh -huh. like, yeah, it's that like false sense of security, knowing that there's a door there, but it's a door that could possibly very easily be broken through if somebody yeah. really wanted to get in. And yeah. it's it's a scary thought. It's a scary thing. And I love a sliding glass door, but also at the same time, it's a thing that very much so creeps me out. But I do love them. I, I hope that my next house has a nice sliding glass door <laughs> looking out at the woods, because I think the woods are... It's where the creepy stuff happens, but it's also where the inspiration comes too for me in a lot of ways. So like, I think it's uh, definitely that like false sense of security. We put walls up to keep things out, but it could so easily come through if it wanted to. Yeah. Can you think of any, uh, any examples in movies where they put that to good use? There's that one, I think it might be on Netflix. We just got Netflix back, but it's the one... It's from the guy who made The Haunting of Hill House. It has his wife in it. She's deaf. And mm -hmm. there's the guy in the slasher mask. I think she has like a glass door. And obviously because she's deaf, she can't hear that he's there. But we as the audience see him and it's like, oh, oh uh, hush. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's very creepy. It's always a sliding glass door in woods. It yep. seems like yeah. there's got to be woods for something to creep out of. And then... A glass door is the theater to view it from. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, too, because here on Long Island specifically, we don't have that. We don't have like thick woods anywhere that houses are up against or anything like that. Like there's mm -hmm. nothing like that. You know, like if I bought a house along the beach, I'd have a sliding glass door looking out at the ocean. Not as scary. Like if Cthulhu is yeah. rising out, then, you know, yeah, bummer. Yeah. but, you know, some Lovecraftian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, give me something crawling out of the ocean. Could be creepy. A megalodon swimming out there. But again, I'm on land. It's what's it going to do to me. Yeah. But yeah, it's just we don't have that here. So, like, I don't have that fear as much. But I'll tell you this, like, there are times where I'll go outside at night and uh, I'll just, like, look into, like, the corner of my yard and our schmuck neighbors have these poison ivy things growing over. So it like casts like more shadow on our fence than it probably should. And I just look at it and I'm like, what's in there? 
what is that? Am I looking at like a thing or a person in there, especially at Halloween time? Because in my mind, Michael Myers is everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, he is in this yard. And as soon as I turn my back, he's going to be on me, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's that great part in Halloween 2018, which defies logic because that's not how motion sensor lights work, by the way. But <laughs> the motion <laughs> light, like it turns off and he freezes uh-huh. and then it turns on and he's moving. Oh, no, it's the other way around. It turns on and he's frozen. It turns off and he's moving. It's like, no, wait, David Gordon yeah. Green, you got it backwards, my guy. But like take that back. (laughs) Yeah, but it's still effective, you know, so like I love that stuff. I love like the things that are in the shadows that you, you know, during the daytime. It's like, oh, it's fine. It's like that Tales from the Dark Side thing. Like, you know, we live in the sun drenched world, but there's another side, you know, Mm -hmm. and I love that stuff. And I think a sliding glass door offers false protection (laughs) from that other side. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners at home, if you would like to live on the dangerous side, get yourself a sliding glass door <laughs> backed up against the woods and a motion sensing light that works backwards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of, I want to say speaking of creepy, but it seems like she's only creepy for a little bit. Ian's mother is a very interesting character because initially you write her, especially when Ian first goes over to visit her. I don't know, just the way you write her that she's kind of sitting in the dark, lit up with her steely blue eyes, crocheting like this old Victorian, scary, you know, school marm. Yeah. That just really set the tone. So it was weird to see that change. Initially, you write her as having a, a very hateful, chilling presence. But then later in the story, she has a change of heart and becomes a doting grandmother. So was one or both of those personas an act? And if so, which one? Or was it something in between? I think it's probably something in between. Dana is just as complicated as anyone else. And she's had her failings and her disappointments. And one of her major disappointments is Ian, her son. And um, it's very difficult for her. It's difficult for her to kind of deal with the things that she's dealt with. That She came to America to escape something that happened in the UK. I don't want to say what it is because there may or may not be a prequel novella that I write because people have asked for one, um, (laughs) which is kind of cool. Yeah. It's like the first time it's ever happened for me. So, you know, there's a lot that she's dealing with and she's in a place of pain also. You know, I want to just say like, oh, well, she's just a horrible person, but she's not. She's coming from a very real place of disappointment with her life, with her son's life, with his choice of partner. Certainly she does not like Lola in the beginning until she gets pregnant. And it's difficult for her to kind of come around and try to be the doting grandmother But when she does, she kind of pours it on very quickly and very thick. Mm. And she's a a character I really enjoyed writing. She's sort of, uh, I hate to say this, she is very lightly based on my own mom. My mom does not have the steely blue eyes. (laughs) My grandmother that I was not a huge fan of had those eyes. And my mom sits in the dark and will knit. She does Mm. do that. And I also wrote this at a very difficult time in our family as well, where there was a lot of static. And I was very frustrated with some of the decisions being made that my mom was making in the wake of my dad passing away. And I was just like, I don't get it. I wasn't seeing her side of things. And she wasn't seeing my side of things. We kind of are on the same page now, which is good. But 
Dana is very much, you know, a combination of negative presences that I've felt in my life. Sometimes at times my mother, my one grandmother, stuff like that. And yeah, she is all of those things. She is pouring it on in a fake way. She is acting, but she's also being very real at the same time. Hmm. There's both. She's complicated. So her initial disagreeable form was just a result of the hardships that she'd gone through. There was no tactical reason for her to behave that way. No. In my mind, I saw her as treating Ian like that for most of Ian's life. Okay. Once she saw what a kind of a disappointment he was for what she had been hoping for him. And uh, yeah, no, that was her. That was very much her. But also very much her is putting the lavender oil on Lola's Mm. stomach so she can get a little rest and feel a little more calm. Like that's also Mm. very much her. It's very much her to be knitting things as gifts and, you know, helping out whenever she can. And, you know, all of that's very much her just as much as the ice queen is very much her. Yeah. The characters that are not black and white are the best ones. You know, they've got, they're not that simple to just, Oh no, they're just all bad or they're just all good. Yeah. 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 Well, I noticed that you share two traits with Ian. You're an English teacher and you both enjoy cigars. So I was mm-hmm. curious to know if you share any other traits with Ian or any of the other characters. Uh, his short temper. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm an Italian from New York. Ah. So I, yeah. So I kind of have like, I do have a little bit of a short fuse, especially when it comes to, um, decisions that seem to be so obvious to me um, and things that could be very easily done that people take a long time to do. So I have a a little bit of a short fuse with that. I do have, and I've been working on this in therapy, some issues with patience. Mm -hmm. I am very, in many ways, impatient with things. And I know Ian is as well, but I am working on that. I am trying to evolve into a more patient person. I'm very patient with my students. Mm -hmm. Because I understand what they're learning is difficult. English as a new language is remarkably difficult. So, of course, I have patience with them. I love them. They're amazing. But I don't have a lot of patience with my coworkers. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's, yeah, we definitely have that. Short fuse. I do get frustrated with the structure of education, especially here in New York as well. Mm. Well, one of the things I find amazing about particular writers is their ability to write from a different perspective, especially a man writing from the perspective of a woman. Mm -hmm. So, and I guess I didn't even think about this, but writing from the perspective of a woman of a different ethnicity. So what is your process when it comes to not only writing from the perspective of a woman, but writing from the perspective of a woman in the throes of childbirth? Because in the book, it wasn't just, you know, Lola goes into labor and out comes the baby. There was a lot of time spent in Lola's mind during the birthing process. Yeah. One of the best pieces of advice that I was given by one of my mentors in my MFA program, every once in a while I go on the Men Writing Women Reddit, which is like the worst possible examples of men writing women. It's always like overtly (laughs) sexual and gross. Yeah. From what I've heard so far, I'm getting not a very glowing endorsement of Reddit from you. (laughs) (laughs) I love certain parts of the Reddit community. (laughs) Like I go to the RuPaul's Drag Race Reddit. That's like my favorite. And that's just sunshine and awesome. And then there's like men writing women talking about things that are perky and just weird to me. But like 
I was reading stuff on there and I was reading uh, and talking to my uh, MFA uh, mentor and she was like, you write women because my young adult novel that I won the Stoker for is from a young girl's perspective. And she was like, you write women well, because, you know, you write them the way they're supposed to be written in the sense that like, they're just people like their gender means little. You know, so like I've had other writers be like, oh, I worried about writing this woman character, this female character or whatever, this female identifying character. And I'm like, dude, just write the character. Like, don't worry about like, oh, I'm going to write about things that you think are feminine or anything like that. Like Lola is distinctly feminine, but she's also she's just a person at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I feel more even though there's a lot that I have in common with Ian, at least surface level, I feel more in common with Lola in a lot of ways too. And I think going into writing something, you just have to write the characters honestly and not so much think about focusing on gender or gender specific things. Like usually I don't give a lot of descriptions of my characters because I want the reader to kind of picture whatever they want or kind of connect to them and see more of themselves, whatever. But like in this case, because she is African-American and dealing with pregnancy, I was able to write her how I would write any other character, but also add in these like layers of little details. Like my calves hurt a lot from walking and carrying this extra weight. Like that sucks that I've heard from, Mm -hmm. you know, women who had children and like the Charlie horses, which like that I can relate to because I get those like crazy, but like, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it while being pregnant. Like that's gotta be horrifying the changes in what you want to eat or what you can eat. Like I've had that happen to me, but again, not to the level as a woman who is with child. So like, again, it was all things that we can all connect to, but then you just have to add the layer of the research on top of it. And then you have like a woman who's pregnant, (laughs) you know? And it's like, I get worried about ever ending up on that men writing women Reddit. I don't want to ever end up there. I know there's a lot of sex in this book between Lola and Ian, but you know what? Like they're very in love and they're very in love with each other's bodies. Mm-hmm. And like, they are a couple who's going to have sex. Like mm-hmm. that's just, just who they are, you know, <laughs> like that there are couples who do have sex, you know, like spoilers, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> like that was, <laughs> so like, but, but you know, like Ian's not spending half of a page describing in a, like a, leering way Lola's body or the other way around. Mm. Yeah. Well, the book involves an ancient esoteric occult order, which I love in any genre of story. And from the description I read of your Bram Stoker award-winning book, The Triangle, it mentions a mysterious group called The Order. There's also a picture of you with the Baphomet at the headquarters of the Satanic Temple in Salem, which I know isn't really like a secret esoteric order. They're kind of like an activism group, Mm -hmm. but they use satanic esoteric iconography. So... Can you tell me a little bit about your interest in secret esoteric orders and societies? I find what people believe in to be interesting. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing a lot of research into this, and actually I wrote a novella for my second collection called Her Infernal Name. And that novella, I have a lot of stuff about 
Astarte and the Temple of Astarte, and I talk to magicians as in the sense of like magicians in the sense of like practicing sex magic and practicing magic in that sense, magic with a K, in other words, not mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm pulling a rabbit out of a hat, not that kind of magic. So I talked to a lot of people about that, and I found that stuff really neat. And I got an invitation to the Temple of Astarte in the city, and I haven't gone yet. I would like to. But um, I just find what people believe interesting. And I've always felt that way. And I'm not here to like say like this religion's cooler than this religion or anything like that. In my youth, I had a very positive religious experience. Like I don't consider myself any religion. I was raised a Methodist mm-hmm. and I'm confirmed in the Methodist church or whatever. But like we had a, an amazing experience in our church. Christian symbolism is interesting to me, and the darker esoteric side of Christianity is interesting to me. I have the Roman ritual. I'm not Catholic, but I have the Roman ritual, and I find reading that fascinating. I find people putting strength behind belief interesting, because at the end of the day, like if this is all there is, if there is no heaven or hell or anything like that, and all that we have is this, then we got to make the best of it. And if believing or like studying esoteric Ars Getia or, you know, researching Astarte, you know, the Poke Runyon stuff, all of that stuff is so neat to me. And I just want to play around with it. And the people at the Temple of Astarte, when I talked to them, as well as some of the other magicians that I talked to, when I told them what I was writing about, the fact that I was writing a horror thing. They weren't offended by it at all. And in fact, they were like, okay, well, we're going to give you the best that we can. Like, we're going to give you the best information that we can and we'll help you the best we can. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's and there was no resistance. They were open. The Satanic Temple is a great example of like open doors. The money goes to a good place. Like Mm -hmm. the Baphomet statue is him with two children. Because the whole idea of the Satanic Temple is to protect children. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, that's literally number one to them. (laughs) I just find all of that stuff fascinating that, like, you just dig a little deeper. There's a whole new reality that you could be exposed to. And I think studying esoteric things like that can help. And I've done a lot of esoteric research. And I find it all so interesting. I get really nerdy about it. I never talk about it with my wife, really. (laughs) Because I know (laughs) I'll go over the deep end. Mm-hmm. But um, I love it. I just find it so neat. I like learning about new things and new ways of thinking and new belief systems and stuff. I want people to feel comfortable in what they believe. Because what's the point otherwise? You know, and I want people to feel comfortable talking about what they believe in with me, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm not religious in any way, but I find religions and I find belief systems interesting. When you mentioned the darker aspects of Christianity, were you talking like about the Gnostics or more specifically about the, you know, weaponizing one's religion? I think that's obviously a horrible oh, thing. Oh, like, so you weren't talking about any benevolent form. You were talking about people that use it for nefarious purposes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, I, I'm a fan of, you know, believe in, in anything you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else or gotcha. taking another person's rights away, obviously. I've, you know, it goes without saying, right? <laughs> that's sort of what I was meaning with that. And there's a oh. lot of really interesting stuff. Like, I just I was just reading in the Bible. I haven't read the Bible since I was in, like, middle school. Mm-hmm. But... 
and I didn't go to a Christian school or anything. It was just that's when I was making confirmation. So I had to read it or whatever. And I looked up like, well, how many exorcisms does Jesus do in the Bible? Because I only remember the one. And it mm-hmm. apparently is quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, well, that's kind of badass. <laughs> like, I like reading, about, you know, things yeah. like that. Like the more interesting sides of religion, I think, are really cool. Mm-hmm. Well, as I alluded to previously, you won a Bram Stoker Award for your book, The Triangle. And from the book's description, it seems dramatically different from the subject matter, even the genre of the vile thing we created. So when it came to reviews, comments, and even in-person conversation, what was the most common thing that people said that they liked about this book that you feel contributed to its award-winning success? I think that people liked that I was doing cosmic horror for a younger audience. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of Lovecraftian or cosmic horror written for a young adult crowd. And I think that's a big part of it because I was kind of looking at the triangle as like baby's first Lovecraft Mm -hmm. or baby's first Cthulhu kind of thing. And that was fun to write. Like I enjoy the Lovecraftian mythos and I enjoy all of those different things. And I know Lovecraft is a controversial figure, but the things that he helped create and forged for horror writers moving forward is so rich and juicy and it's ripe (laughs) for Mm -hmm. exploration through different mediums. And I think that's why people liked it. I think that's why people connected to it. And I hope that's why it won because it was really a lot of fun to write it. And I had a lot of resistance because I wrote it. I wrote it during my MFA program while I had COVID and my MFA program was very, very resistant to me writing a horror novel because they do not like genre unless Mm -hmm. that genre is like fantasy, not even fantasy, but like magical realism. They love some magical realism, Mm -hmm. but they don't love horror. They don't love science fiction. Yeah. I forget who it was, was telling me he was wanting to write some sort of a paper or something horror related when he was in, I guess, undergrad, graduate, I can't remember. And he said the general gist of what he got from his professor was that he thought horror was like lowbrow. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't take talent to write for some reason. Yeah. And, which, which is, is the dumbest, it's yeah. the dumbest take imaginable. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that as a horror writer, but I'm saying that as like somebody who thinks, you know, Writers like Gabino Iglesias, Ina Paleo, Paul Tremblay, John Langan are brilliant, brilliant literary writers who happen to also write horror. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's absurd to think that horror or Stephen Graham Jones, like, mm-hmm. my God, you know, <laughs> literary is literary is literary. And then there's Stephen Graham Jones, just like a genius. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just it's stupid. It's such an antiquated take. And it's so gross mm-hmm. and it's so obnoxious to have this like look at horror as, you know, it's lesser than other genre writing, mm-hmm. especially because the horror community by and large is lovely. Like mm-hmm. it's filled with wonderful, lovely people. Mm-hmm. It's strange. It's a strange world. Like I could tell you. The general YA authors that I have met have been 
infinitely more unkind than any horror writer that I've really met. interesting by far. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, a friend of mine listened to one of my episodes and I think it was Christian Taftrup. I think he had seen speak no evil and he was like, yeah, he seems like a real nice guy. I'm like, yeah, everybody that writes the most fucked up shit you've ever read or makes, you know, directs the most fucked up shit you've ever seen are always just the sweetest people on the face of the planet. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's crazy too, because it's like, there's so much art that goes into crafting horror and like film, especially like mm-hmm. coming up with the effects of how to have a child's head turn 360 degrees in 1971, 1972 during the making of the exorcist. I'm sorry. There's a lot more artistry in that one special effect than there is in the entirety of love story. And you're never going to convince me otherwise. Like, mm-hmm. so that alone, Exorcist is the more important than just about anything else mm-hmm. made that year or in that decade. Rest in peace, Friedkin. Um, all right. <laughs> I miss him. But it's always like those guys who are like pushing that stuff forward. And then you see it later on. Like, would The Last Samurai have had such great gore effects of Tom Cruise slicing people up with a sword if... George Romero didn't do it in 1982 uh, with Day of the Dead. Like, I doubt it. Yeah. Well, so you have a collection of short stories set to release on October 27th of this year, I believe, called Wrapped in Plastic and Other Sweet Nothings. Very solid name. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. There's like 17 stories in there. A few of them are reprints. There's seven originals in there. And it's an opportunity to go darker with my short fiction. My last collection and my first collection both had some hopeful type stories in it. This one doesn't really have that. It's more kind of balls to the wall horror than anything else. There's a lot of darkness in there. And the title story alone is exceedingly dark like that to me in my mind that's the price of admission that's worth the price of admission is the title story alone Hmm. it's just a dark dark collection and there's there's one story in there that i love and i actually i read it when i do readings around halloween here in new york a morning in sleepy hollow and a morning is in like you know somebody who's passed away morning in that way Hmm. and it's basically what happened the following morning after Ichabod Crane disappeared. Mm. And that story I just really love because in my heart, I live in Sleepy Hollow and in my brain, I live in Sleepy Hollow, even though I don't have a million dollars to buy a house in Sleepy Hollow or Tarrytown. (laughs) My heart lives there all year long. So Mm. I'm really happy with that story. It's a little longer than some of the others, but that's in that collection. I'm really excited for people to discover that more broadly. Okay. Well, you are an accomplished short story writer that has been published in multiple anthologies. Where is the strangest place you've ever gotten an idea for a short story? Yeah, that's a good question. I think probably, oh man, okay, this is dark. So I have... (laughs) (laughs) Or darkest. Yeah, let's go with that one. (laughs) I had a story in sort of a crime horror magazine called Rock in a Hard Place magazine. And the story is called Down to Clown. And it's about a guy who gets into a relationship with a sort of a... She's a little shy young woman. She's a teacher. She's a little kid's like kindergarten teacher or whatever. 
preschool. That's what it is. She's a preschool teacher. And it turns out in order for her to really indulge in any kind of physical activity, she has to dress as a clown. Mm. And that kind of came from a real life experience that I had with a girl that I <laughs> like sort of dated like off and on. She worked a normal job. And then on weekends, she was a party clown. And I was over her place and I was like, do you have the costume? Like, do you have the makeup? She's like, yeah. And she took out the costume, showed me, showed me the makeup thing. And I was like, eh, let's maybe throw it on. So <laughs> that's kind of where that one like came from. That's probably the weirdest. That's the weirdest place. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. kind of the weirdest place. Hell yeah. 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 You got to do I'm things for about. the story, man. You know, like do it for the story and don't die wondering. Those are my... So she was evidently down to clown. She was, in fact, down to clown. Outstanding. <laughs> screen to screen high five. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a scene, for sure. Grease paint everywhere. Well, which is your most mainstream literary influence, and which is the most obscure? Yeah, most obscure would probably be, I guess he's probably obscure. Robert Aikman is probably my most obscure. He's kind of a master of ghost stories. He has a really amazing, I guess you'd call it a novelette called The Inner Room. Uh, he's got a couple of collections as well. But Robert Aikman is a big, 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 big influence on me. And my most mainstream influence, I would say, is probably John Langan, mm-hmm. who um, he's a hero of mine. His collection, Saphir and Other Betrayals, was very inspirational to me. And everything he writes is just amazing. And his book, The Fisherman, to me, is cornerstone, foundational horror novel reading. Mm. So much so, I've bought so many copies of it and given them away as gifts. It just means a lot to me, that novel. And I reread it every year. And I have a very strong emotional reaction to it. But I would say Langan. Langan and Robert Aikman are my two like the obscure one, Aikman, the more mainstream Langan. Gotcha. Well, with regard to your literary tastes, how wide or narrow is the spectrum of your reading with regard to genre? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I like to read widely. I read this amazing coming-of-age novel called Filthy Creation by Caroline Haygood. And, you know, not horror at all. And not young adult coming of age either. It was very much for adults, but it was just incredible. I've never seen teenagers captured so honestly before. But I also, you know, I obviously read a lot of horror, but there's certain horror that I can't really get into. Like, I'm not super into like the like extreme, you know, splattery type stuff. I haven't read a lot of it, so Mm -hmm. that's probably why. But yeah, I read pretty widely. I like a good ghost story. I like a good monster story, you know. I love a nice ambiguous novel like a Paul Tremblay mm-hmm. kind of thing, even though in my mind, I don't have a lot of ambiguity at the end of because <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, that happened. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, he would probably hit me for saying that. But um, yeah, I like to read as widely as possible. And that's probably the most exciting thing about horror right now is there's so many different voices and there's so much like on offer that you can explore and find like you go down one rabbit hole and you'll get 
you know, something like The Briars mm -hmm. by Stephanie Parent, which is one of my favorite books of the year. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you'll come the other way and you'll read something like Krista Carmen's Daughters of Block Island, which is also horror, but it's not like The Briars at all. And these are two young voices that are both very exciting to see have material out there. And that's so cool and so fun and so exciting to see. And then you have like Erica Wirth, White Horse, which is like indigenous Native American horror, but done in a very like literary way that's there's like a lot of history there. It's just so damn good. That was one of my favorites of last year. But there's a lot. There's a lot on offer. So like go to your Barnes and Noble and like tell them not just Stephen King. <laughs> like <laughs> You know, there's always room for the king, but there's yeah. always room for Paul Tremblay and Todd Keesling and guys like that, too. You know, like get as much of these newer voices out there, too. Yeah. Uh, Jack Moody. I don't know if you've ever read his stuff. He writes a column in uh, I think it's called Bell Esprit. I'm probably butchering it. And if he's listening to this, he's laughing at me right now. But um, <laughs> he writes a column where he recommends indie books. And oh, the cool. name of the column is There Are Other Authors Besides Dan Brown and Fucking James Patterson. <laughs> 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 and fucking is, is actually in the title. <laughs> it's true, man. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> you know what's really kind of fun to see, too, is like, Names that are not as big as like Stephen King, right? Like mm -hmm. those names are coming through. Like Paul Tremblay just had a movie made by M. Night Shyamalan. Like that's huge, mm -hmm. you know? And that's only going to keep happening. Like Victor Laval has a thing with Apple coming out. Like, and that's crazy exciting. You know, mm -hmm. Cena Paleo had something optioned. Children of Chicago has been optioned. Like this is thrilling stuff. Like we're going to see more of these younger newer voices and like there yeah the column name is perfect because <laughs> you know and nobody wants to nobody's gonna trash talk stephen king because a he's super nice and b yeah. he's the most successful horror writer that's ever lived so mm -hmm. it doesn't matter you know like and he's amazing there has to be more though you know and like for these things so like you know why does barnes and noble stock so much stephen king because he sells no oh, yeah if you know stephen graham jones sold as much as stephen king Shelves would be filled with Stephen Graham Jones. Thankfully, my local Barnes and Noble has a very excellent horror section and they have plenty of Stephen Graham Jones as well. So nice. Yeah, as there should be. Well, so your writing gets into the transgressive realm. Do you think there should be any limit on what you can write about in the realm of fiction? No, I don't think there should be limits for anybody to write anything. I want everybody writing everything all of the time. I want to hear all of the perspectives. I want to hear all of the takes. And if they're horrible, racist, terrible takes, that person's going to be taken out of the community pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So let them reveal themselves because then we'll all dogpile and then they'll go away forever. <laughs> so yeah, I don't want anybody to feel restricted in writing whatever they want. That said, it's very difficult to live like that because people, like I said, will dogpile if they're not, if they're not understanding what it is they're reading or they're having a, a reaction to it. I just read something from an author. It hasn't been published yet. And his main character is very misogynistic and very chauvinistic. And he sent an additional chapter 
saying like, hopefully this will soften this character. And it didn't. And I'm like, this will never fly. I'm like, this just won't fly. You can't write a guy like that. You just can't. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's anything openly racist, openly misogynistic, then you deserve to be found out and called out about that. Like, that's not good. <laughs> you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Well, now, this guy, he's in a sense endorsing misogyny and not just portraying it. No, he's portraying it, but it's a tight rope to walk because you're going to have readers who are not going to understand that he's portraying it and they mm-hmm. will think that he is promoting it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not like saying, it's a like, dog well, whistle or something. Right. Okay. Right. That it could be something that gets him in trouble, even though he doesn't mean it. Mm-hmm. If they're not reading closely, which, you know, not for nothing. Like, I don't always read the closest to things either. You know, I don't have a ton of time. So when I read, I read fast and I don't always have, you know, the best, you know, reaction to certain things. Something that you'll pick up will be different than something I pick up, you know, mm-hmm. but also that comes along with like reading super close. And a lot of reviewers do read very close. And they'll pick up, but then they'll be the ones that don't. And if they're a person who makes enough noise, that's the end of that book. And that's the end of that author. Mm -hmm. Just how it is. So that's why, you know, with writing like the vile thing and having a woman of color who is pregnant and writing from her perspective, I did an ocean of research, you know, and like (laughs) that was the big part of it. You know, like I didn't want to be told like, oh, you can't write this person. I was told that in my MFA program. I I was starting something and I was told you're not allowed to write from that perspective. Mm-hmm. And I've told a lot of other authors that and authors who are the perspective I was going to write from have said, well, that wasn't right of them to say to you. Like you can write from that as long as you do your homework and, you know, mm-hmm. represent everything in a sensitive, intelligent way instead of just making things like base level. You could write anything you want. You just have to do your homework and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of some of that, what is some of the most unusual feedback you've gotten from readers about any of your work? Yeah. Besides being a- an antinatalist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there was a review of file thing that I saw that mentioned Ian talking about other women and I don't remember writing him talking about any other women other than his wife and his mom. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't, I don't, I saw that and I was like, Hmm, all right, that's cool. I guess they saw something that I didn't see, but those are always the most fun or actually when people see things that you don't necessarily expect them to see, or Mm -hmm. they see things in your work that like you didn't even realize Like, that's the kind of stuff that I always get a kick out of, like people seeing, you know, Jonesy one way or the other, whereas I see him one way, you know. Mm -hmm. And again, I guess that goes with like the idea of leaving things ambiguous in some ways, whether or not it is or isn't. But that excitement of seeing people read into things, that's really cool. And I'm hoping that'll happen with the Wrapped in Plastic collection, too, because there's a lot of ambiguity in those stories. And there's a lot of darkness and like, I think people will read different things into, you know, different stories. Like the title story could be read one way, but it could also be read entirely differently than that. Hmm. Well, are you a pantser or an outliner? And have you tried both? And if so, why does one work for you and not the other? I've tried both. 
I like to plot everything and then pants when I'm in the scene. So I'll write what needs to happen in the scene. We need to get from point A to point B. How we get there is a different story. Like it could go any way. I did that with my most recent novel that I just finished the other day. And I was very happy with the results. I am obviously going to go back and revise and like tear it apart Mm -hmm. and add things and take certain things out and whatever. In fact, I know for a fact that the ending is going to change. I had that revelation two nights ago. And I was so annoyed at myself for not coming up with the ending that I came up with after I wrote an ending, but whatever. So yeah, I like to plot, but then I improv within the scene. So do you plot from beginning to end and then start that process? Yeah, I plot the whole thing beginning to end. I'll do act one, act two, act three. Then I'll go individual scenes. This needs to happen here. This needs to happen here. These things need to happen. So vile thing, because it's a, a novel in trimester, Act one, act two, act three was a little easier to do. Whereas my new thing is prologue, part one, part two, epilogue. Mm. So that was a little harder for me to kind of roll act two into the midpoint of part one and part two. Okay. So that was a little different, but I like the structure of it. I come from kind of a playwriting screenwriting background, which I think helps a lot because all the same things that apply to writing a screenplay apply to writing a novel. Like here's the dark moment here's this, you know, the Mm -hmm. hero's journey. Like I hate the hero's journey, but I love the hero's journey because it's the framework for everything. Yeah. You know, it's nice when it's subverted, but yeah. Okay. Well, do you ever get writer's block? And if so, do you have any hacks for getting out of it? I've never really had writer's block because there's always something that I need to be working on. I've got like, about a thousand ideas in my phone and I've got about three or four in my email that I've sent myself. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And those are like short stories. They could be novels, Mm -hmm. novellas, they could be whatever, but there's always something that I could be doing. The biggest problem that I have is time. Yeah. Time is the only thing that I'm up against because I work full time As a teacher, I'm going to be teaching after school stuff this year, which I do not want to do, but I'm going to do it because I'm a sucker. And (laughs) you're not trying to get tenure, are you? (laughs) No, no. no. I'm actually I'm one of those weird, rare teachers who does not believe in tenure. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it makes you lazy once you get it. So I'm a guy who, you know, stretches myself very thin. September and October, I've got a lot of podcasts i'm doing i'm going to canada for a book signing Mm. i have a huge book signing here on the island with like nine other authors and it's a lot you know so once october is done i'll be able to dedicate some of that free time to uh writing more Mm -hmm. but time is the biggest thing that's the biggest stumbling block for me with my writing is time gotcha well as you've just mentioned you've done a lot of publicity book readings, book signings, podcasts, and even an interview on NPR. And as far as social media, what have you found to be the most effective marketing technique and not necessarily a particular platform, but something like cover reveals, unboxing, you know, something kind of a a gimmicky thing that could be used across all platforms? I found having a really great strategic partner for a cover reveal was really great so like Mm -hmm. horror tree did the cover reveal for the vile thing we created 
which also launched the pre-orders and they did a video interview with a written interview as well. And that was really great. And it went awesome. And I'm, I'm very happy with how all that went. Lauren McMenemy and Stuart Conover at Horror Tree cannot thank them enough. And then with Wrapped in Plastic, we had Nightworms, which is Sadie Hartman's and Ashley Sayers' group. They just they could not be nicer. Like, and that was amazing to see. Like, I've always wanted a Nightworms cover reveal, and now I got one. So, like, nice. that's dope. <laughs> but you know, having a good partner and having somebody who's excited, like, you know, in my communication with Sadie, she was very sweet and excited and kind. And she doesn't have to be. She has a book out right now that's killing it. Mm-hmm. She didn't have to take the time to launch my silly thing, you know, but she did. <laughs> You know, and that the stuff vile matters. The thing you created. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the vile thing, yeah. But it's like, you know, having somebody who's excited about your stuff, having a, a publisher who's excited too, and a publisher who cares. Like my publisher, Hydra, for Vile Thing, we were having a, a hell of a time with the cover. Mm-hmm. A hell of a time with the cover. Yeah, it's so eye-catching. Like, just <laughs> so, I just... <laughs> I feel like I'm insulting you by saying bizarre, but I mean, it is. It's bizarre. No, it's like, wow. I love what, it. What is this? <laughs> so the cool thing about my publisher, Tony Acri at Hydra, he rejected six out of seven covers that were submitted to him by three different art teams. So he showed me one and his exact quote was, I hate this cover, but you might like it. I just want to see what you think. And I didn't like it either. So mm. then we were kind of, not like scrambling, but we were very nervous about the cover. So then I went to Alexis Macaluso, who I I published one of her books through my small press, and she whipped this cover together. She gave me three options. This was one of them, and I loved it. And I love the other two also. I might use those for other things. But this Mm -hmm. cover, she's still keeping it a secret who those people are on the cover. I have no idea who they are. I don't want to know who they are. Yeah, but she was amazing. I could not be more thankful to her for coming up with something that people seem to really like. And also, and this was another thing that I wanted to do. So like the wrapped in plastic cover is almost the complete opposite. Whereas this is like pastels. It's brighter, even though there is that darkness and griminess a little bit to it. Mm-hmm. The wrapped in plastic cover is dark and yeah. red and yeah. white and blood. And I was like, I love it. I like the two mm. next to each other will look really cool, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, tell me a little bit about your press, your business venture. Yeah. Spooky House Press. I started it originally as a way to publish my own collections and stuff because I thought it would be cool to have like a logo on the spine of the book. Like literally that was my first thought was like, I wanted to have a cool logo. Mm-hmm. So I found a little haunted house logo, put it on there whatever. And then the opportunity to publish other authors came to me. I got an email from an author named Michael Jess Alexander, who was like, hey, I really like your two collections. I have a collection of short stories. Would you be interested in publishing that? And I talked to one of my partners. He's um, an editor and formatter that I am sort of partnered with. And I was like, what do you think of this? Like publishing other people. And he was like, that sounds awesome. Mm. So then we've kind of moved into that. And the whole goal with everything we do is I want to like help people who are not as established, like get a little bit of a foothold and maybe be able to like 
turn that into, you know, like to gain just a little bit of help to get them to the next level. Like mm-hmm. Spooky House is not setting out to be like, we're going to be so badass and transgressive. And we're going to publish all the blah, 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 blah. We're going to publish whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Like whatever weird thing comes in that I, that really tickles my fancy. I'm mm-hmm. going to publish it. But like, I'm not setting out to be like, I want books from this famous person or anything like that. That's completely counter to the mission. And it's really just to give people an opportunity to get published to like, you know, make a little money. Hopefully, you know, we just released six books in the past year and I've been happy with how they've all turned out. I hope the authors are happy as well. You know, it's an opportunity for authors to get paid on time because a lot of publishers don't, Mm. (laughs) Um, you know, and it's an opportunity for them to really work hand in hand throughout the whole process with me. And we've got four books coming out between 2023, 2024. And I'm excited. And then, the you know, in 2025, we'll probably have two, maybe three books that we put out. But um, it's just been fun. And it's been a nice way to give people a little more experience that they might not have the Mm -hmm. opportunity to have. But, you know, we've published some really fun stuff and some really dark stuff and some really experimental stuff, too. We almost published Stephanie Parent's book, mm. The Briars. I wanted it desperately, but I couldn't beat the Cemetery Gates uh. contract, which I love Cemetery Gates so much. I've loved them forever. I'm going to have a book coming out with them, but I love them before that ever happened. Uh. So like, oh, I love Cemetery Gates and stuff so much. Like, But I'm so glad that it came out with them. Stephanie, the one that got away. <laughs> yeah, for real, man. Like, I read that book and I literally just sat there, like, shocked. <laughs> like, that is so good. Yeah. It's just so damn good. Yeah. Shout out to Stephanie Perrin. Yeah, hell yeah. That's a book that's got legs, too. Like, that's one that I think people will be very happy to discover down the line. Like, I think that's one that people are going to look back on and be like, you know what? That's like one of the big ones. Or at least I hope for her and for Cemetery Gates, because like it's so damn good. It deserves all the attention it can get. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the life of Robert P. Otone like outside of writing? It's pretty much kind of what you see on social media. Like I'm a very weird, like chaotic. I was told chaotic wholesome is what my brand <laughs> is. And that's very much it <laughs> like i'm that sounds like a style of dress like oh i'm going <laughs> chaotic wholesome for the gala what about you <laughs> <laughs> it's i like you know i do love cigars cigars are the one vice that if i was told i would die if i didn't stop smoking them i wouldn't stop smoking them <laughs> i love them too much uh, and i'm not like a i have to smoke this brand or whatever i like different things. So my life outside of, you know, teaching and writing is really like, I just want to relax. I like seeing my friends. I like drinking a nice cocktail, smoking a cigar. I love spending time with my wife. She is by far the superior person in our relationship. You know, I'm a big, big fan of hers. She's a baker. So that's where a lot of the Lola stuff came from Mm. with that. But I just... I enjoy the quiet and I enjoy the relaxing. Like I really, there's certain shows that I love relaxing to. RuPaul's Drag Race is like my favorite thing ever. 
I just enjoy a lot of things. I love going to shows. I just went to Broadway. I saw The Shark is Broken about the guys making Jaws. I just love participating in art outside of art and outside of work. And I love championing the authors that I really like and want to support too. And I'm really just a guy who wants a good New York strip and wants to smoke a nice cigar. Mm. At the end of the day, that's kind of all I want to do. Nice. Well, Robert, it's been a blast talking with you. Thank you. I appreciate you taking the time and having such fabulous questions. Absolutely. I apologize for taking up so much of your time, but you hey man, I I'm literally doing nothing. <laughs> I have a, I'm doing a lecture tonight All at right. a library, but that's it. Gotcha. Well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Yeah, the vile thing we created is out now from Hydra. If you want to get like a signed one, you can go right through me. Or if you want to get it on the A to Z website, the Amazon, you can get it there. I just hope you enjoy it. And my new collection of short fiction, Wrapped in Plastic and Other Sweet Nothings, is coming out October 27th. And if you're in the Northeast, I have a lot of events that I'm going to be at, a lot of book things. So social media is the best place to look for those. But uh, yeah, that's kind of everything. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Robert, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Have a good one. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by a tech engineer that is navigating the tidal wave of artificial intelligence. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. As long as you're here.